Welcome, survivors, to No Problem Too Big, the podcast where artists and researchers speculate on the end of the world as though it has already happened. You've stumbled into episode one, Artificial Intelligence and Killer Robots. I'm Adam Horbett, your all-too-human host for the post-apocalypse. But luckily, you're not just in my hands. Let me introduce our panel for today. Okay, so first up, we have Joe Anderson. Hello, Joe. Hi, how are you? I'm well, uh, despite the <laughs> <Are> fact, you? <laughs> despite the circumstances, yes. <laughs> so, Joe, you're writer, winner of the Aurelius Dittmar and Australian Shadows Awards. Indeed. And you write fantasy slash horror slash science fiction. Yes. I would say I write anything that's a little bit weird. I've been a fan of your work since I discovered the book Bone Chime Song. Mm-hmm. That's a collection of short stories. Yes, and some interesting post-apocalyptic stories in that. Yes, I went through um, in preparation for this. I thought, oh, I'll get this book out and have a look at how many of my stories are actually post-apocalyptic. And I was a little devastated to realise how many of them are. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry you're an unwitting expert on, on the topic. John Page, you're an academic at UNSW. Yes, and the editor for the International Journal for Intelligent Unmanned Systems. Have I got the name right? Yes, you got the name correct. That sounds fun. It is fun. It's, uh, you know, it deals with all sorts of systems, both flying and crawling and swimming and in space. So it's kind of fun. Right. And you have some experience with artificial intelligence through agent-based systems. Yes. I, my main research has been with swarms of agents. So that's where my main research is and where my lab mainly works. But we also work quite strongly in simulation. So we really work with simulating these kind of vehicles. Okay. All right. So you've already simulated the apocalypse and you're ready to go. So <laughs> welcome to the panel. And finally, very excited to have Toby Walsh. Toby, you're an expert in AI, a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science and winner of the Humboldt Award. Congratulations. Thank you. In 2015, was it, you authored an open letter calling for a ban on autonomous weapons or killer robots? Yes. Myself and many of my colleagues were concerned about where these technologies were taking us. And so we put together an open letter that was signed when we released it by a thousand. Now it's got over 20,000 signatures. It's signed by people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk. But I think what's most more interesting is that it was signed by many of my colleagues, leading experts, researchers in artificial intelligence, calling for a preemptive ban on lethal autonomous weapons, or as the media like to call them, killer robots. Hopefully that letter does the trick, because that's the technology that I could certainly live without. It's an issue that has been taken up by the United Nations, uh, and you know, diplomacy moves slowly. But I'm pleased to say in August this year, they'll be having the first formal discussions that might lead eventually to a preemptive ban. The primitive forms of artificial intelligence we already had, had proved very useful. But I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Once humans develop artificial intelligence, it will take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded. Alright guys, well, let's dive into it. Segment 1, View from the Apocalypse. 
So it starts like this. A computer scientist, a mechanical engineer, and a writer walk into the empty eye socket of a partially buried giant robot. But it's not a joke, and it's not the world we grew up in, not since artificial intelligence. So together, these three are ready to face the questions that plague what's left of human society after the apocalypse has happened. What went wrong? What could we have done? And where to now? Okay, difficult questions for difficult times, but facing them is the one option we still have left. Joe, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> what does the apocalypse look like? after artificial intelligence? For me, I think this is a two-pronged question because there's what I actually in real life think and what I think in fiction. Actually in real life think is a little depressing and involves what's happening now in Korea and nuclear war and climate change and apparently adding AI to this factor. I know lots of writers who do, but I personally don't tend to write about that, possibly because I do find it a little too depressing. So the fiction writer in me makes this uh, a little more surreal and a little more bombastic. It sees something like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds, where the world has become covered in toxic fungal forests. There are buried super weapons in the desert. That's the apocalypse I want to see because I can do interesting <laughs> things with that. <laughs> sure, the apocalypse you want to see. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's the kind. Of, that's the apocalypse we want, I guess. If we're gonna have to have one, may as well be that one. And what about intelligent artificial life? Is this what, what's happening there? Again, this is a personal, obviously, impression. I'm also a horror writer, so I think that means that I don't have a lot of faith in humans and mm. humanity. I love things like Astro Boy and maybe the new video game called Nier Automata, which poses questions about whether or not robots are actually worse or better than humans. I wonder if the AI in my apocalypse is trying to do something to fix the problem, is copying what we have done to it and is trying to make it better. Uh, from my understanding of Nier Automata, I'm, I'm a few hours into that uh, strange and eerie game, but you have uh, the world's kind of taken over by robots who are yeah. reproducing themselves. It's post, post, post apocalypse. Yeah. Humans are living <laughs> on the moon, but then they have androids that are fighting those other robots and those androids are sentient and they have moral questions. So yeah. it's very much the kind of territory that, that we're in today. Now, Toby, this is something you deal with. In your opinion, it sounds like from that letter, it was a mistake from the first place to make all these intelligent robots that could fight wars for us. I certainly don't think we should be giving robots the life or death decisions. They don't know how to make those moral decisions today. Maybe in the future they will be, but we are seeing an arms race at this very moment in the technologies. And in the next few years, the military will be fielding technologies that we'll be making if we let them life or death decisions. There will be weapons of terror. They will be weapons of mass destruction. It will be a very terrifying future and it will lower the barriers to war. We already have flash crashes on the stock market. We'll have flash crashes that will start international wars because we'll have complex systems that behave in complex, strange ways, strange feedback loops that we don't understand. And so this will mean that you know, some trigger will happen, whether it's be in North Korea or somewhere else. It will be an unintended future that we end up in, one where the robots start fighting. Uh, we, we don't want them to. Your view of the apocalypse here is that just some kind of glitch 
has made it all go bad. That's one view. Actually, my suspicion is that hopefully we'll make the right decision here. Hopefully the United Nations will, as they have in other domains, other types of weapon system, decide that we should have a ban and there will be a moral repugnance against these sorts of weapons. And we will not field them in general, just like we don't use chemical weapons, just like we don't use biological weapons, just like there has been a limitation of proliferation of nuclear weapons. Hopefully we will decide, occasionally we make a good decision collectively as a society to make these choices. The fear I've, uh, is that we'll, we'll solve this problem. This is a very apparent problem where people are talking about it. There's a campaign to stop killer robots. But the apocalypse will be one where we wake up and we discover we're in quite the wrong world. And that the increasing inequalities that we see in our life today, the increasing fake news, we'll wake up and discover that society has been completely fractured. It was nicely summarized by a quote from Edward McAfee, the co-author of The Second Machine Age. He said, before the robots rise up, the workers are going to rise up. And that we are seeing our society being increasingly broken and and jobs taken away by robots and and artificial intelligence and increasing inequality that's being driven by the capitalist system. This will fracture our society. And I, I do wonder, I do fear that it won't survive. We've had a brief moment, 50, 60 or 70 years since the last World War, um, where prosperity increased. But we're seeing that now change. And we may wake up in a future more like 1984 or Fahrenheit 451, uh, where we find it's not the society we want it to be where there are very few people who are in charge who are wealthy and enjoying the benefits and the rest of us who have actually gone backwards. What does it look like when you go out on the street, do your day-to-day life? What's life like? I suspect we'll see a large percentage of the population whose livelihood has gone backwards, whose engagement with society, engagement with democracy has gone backwards. We'll see a society with much greater divisions. The future's already here, it's just a bit unevenly spread, and we already see the grassroots of this in Brexit and Trump and and the dissatisfaction you see with most people with with the political system and the disenfranchisement of, of young people, especially with our political process and with the prospect of the future and all these other pressures that are also pressuring us that were mentioned earlier. All of these were stressing the planet and then we throw in the mix the advances and the stresses that technological change will bring and I see that breaking down our society and the structures that we see and the cooperation that we see and the fact that we want to see all of us prosper. And so I see a society having huge great divisions within it and the political process and the engagement that people have just being completely lost. So some of this is handed over to other intelligences. We'll wake up and we realize that we've given responsibility to machines without realizing it and that they, the impact, the consequences they have on our life. There's lots of little examples we've already seen today with primitive technologies that increasingly we hand over responsibilities to machines and we wake up and realize that some of those hard-fought rights, those of racial discrimination, age discrimination, uh, sexual discrimination, that will be given up and we won't realize we've given them up because we've given them up to black boxes machines that we don't realize are biased they're not it's not intended it's not something that some consequence but it's an unintended consequence moving forwards so we have the weaponized glitch apocalypse or we have the slow crawl to the end kind of apocalypses uh, through substitution it would be nice to think it was a slow crawl to the end but i fear the rate of change and progress today is such that it won't be a a, a slow change. It's something that our society is changing very rapidly. And you see this in the politics of the United States, the politics of the United Kingdom. You see this in our political discourse. You see this in the nature of work today. I mean, I think you see the beginnings of this all around us, and it's going to happen very quickly. John, what are these agents doing? Why have they done this to us? First, I'd really like to say, you know, I agree in a sort of way with both people have just spoken. I think the risk of the nuclear 
case is a very serious one, or weapons of mass destruction. And I think we all have to campaign very strongly to stop these things becoming autonomous. What I see the future as being is very much like Toby's, only I see it rather more optimistically in a way. Um, what I think will happen is that I think that as these systems take over more and more of the tasks we don't want to do, we will find ourselves more and more dominated by them. And what worries me about that is that eventually the machines will be taking decisions that really should be taken by people. But I don't know that it's that much different. Most people feel very lacking in ability to take decisions today. Most people do not relate the Western democracy to have an agency. It's just not true. That the influence that I can have as a voter is very, very limited. And I think that this is the real risk to the world as we see it, that basically most people don't care about these values because basically they don't affect them or they affect them, they can't do anything about it. And I can see a benign uh, AI filling these gaps. And I can see a situation where most people are quite happy about it. The loss of agency will not worry them that much if their standard of living is rising and if their quality of life is rising and global warming is solved and, you know, and there are more ecologically sound things done. So if their agents are benign, then I think that they'll be terribly accepted. The problem with that is that you've lost agency. So what you've really become is a colonial country. You know, if you read some of the statements in India when India was under British Raj, a vast majority of the people were not unhappy about that. You know, this idea the whole of India rose up against the British Raj isn't true. People felt the British Raj was dealing with starvation, dealing with a whole raft of things associated with caste. And you know, I worry about the fact that I think that people will accept uh, a dominance, if you like, or a super... Uh, 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 how can I put it? A colonial power that's in fact an artificial intelligence. But I think they'll accept it to a large extent quite happily. And that worries the hell out of me because that means effectively that you've lost agency. And I don't want to see the human race lose agency. But I think we've got a real chance of doing that. And at the moment, we're quite prepared to do it in a lot of ways. I mean, I was talking to guys outside about machines that ring up a fitter when they're broken down, time to come and fix them. At that point, you know, how close is the fitter running the machine and the machine running the fitter? And I'm not real sure. So, some people say that, you know, machines could be held to higher standards than humans because, because they will be... Uh, more precise, they they won't. You know, this, this is one of the arguments used for killer robots. Why we'd want robots in the battlefield is that is that warfare is a terrible thing and atrocities get committed. And so you could make robots that, that would follow international humanitarian law. There are rules for war. It's a, it's a strange thing to think that when we fight war, we, we codify it and there are limits to what you can do. But nevertheless, there are and that robots will be better than, that, than humans. But I would disagree. We don't, we don't know, first of all, how to do that today. And we don't know how to build systems that can't be hacked to behave in ways that will be unethical. Mm. They would be misused by other people. They, they will be, the code will be modified and they would be weapons of terror, as I said before. Well, the drones are a classic case where you know, the drones are acting outside international law. And when challenged, the American government transfers it from defence to CIA. 
you're because CIA is not bound by international law. But they are attacking targets in neutral countries, which is outside the Geneva Convention. They are targeting individuals, including Americans, by the way, which is extremely illegal under American law. So your technology will be used. I'm not sure that I that I think the fact the person there stops it, but I think the fact the person's there, there's someone you can prosecute. And I that, think you meant to say, I think you meant to say that technology will be misused. That's the problem. Or technology could be used for good or for bad. And yeah. here's a case where the technology is being misused. And I think there's a strong argument, especially when you're putting robots into the battlefield, that we excuse warfare to take place because people are risking their own lives. And that it comes back to this agency idea again that you were mentioning at the start, which is that as soon as we distance ourselves from it, it becomes more like a video game. As soon as we allow people to fight war by remote control or by autonomous robots, that we're taking the humans out of the loop. The things that we allow to happen perhaps should not be allowed to happen. We allow people, um, you know, warfare to happen because people are risking their own lives. It should always be a matter, in my view, of last resort. It shouldn't be something easy. I think there's another question, and that is that I think that the individual who presses that button is challenged by their own morality, whereas computers are not challenged by their own morality. Joe, you, you spoke of this dream of a magical apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this is all, all hurting me a lot, and, <laughs> and I'm wondering if, if you can maybe give us that perspective. The attraction to apocalypse is that it wipes the slate clean, um, and it gives you an opportunity to start again, I think, from a fiction writer and looking at society and what people do and, and how we want to organise that when we're imagining a new world, is it gives us that opportunity. So we can think about, um, I'm trying to think of my own writing, I suppose, you know, we can, we can think of a world where scientists have broken space-time in, in an attempt to talk to another dimension, as, as you do, and that has, while it's devastated the, the structure at the time, it's opened up new possibilities. So that's, to me, that's a, a magical apocalypse. Do you see coming into contact with other intelligences as being damaging to our own? Personally, no, I don't think so. I, I'm a complex person. I, while I don't have a lot of faith in a lot of humanity, I also love the Gene Roddenberry ideal yeah. where you know we come into contact with other intelligence, with alien life, and it brings us together as humans instead of these tribes that always war with each other. And in the terms of AI, if we create an AI that's a bigger intelligence than us, would that undermine who we are? I don't think so. I don't think it has to. Carl Sagan, one of the many things he said was that when they sent the, the cassette of Beethoven off on the Pioneer, yeah, yeah. he said, you know, this is what, I mean, it was his, his idea. He said, the big fear is that we'll get one back that's better than Beethoven. <laughs> and, and you know, do you have that concern? That we'll get something better than Beethoven? Hmm. <laughs> well, well, I mean, would Beethoven not compose if there was someone from space no. that was doing a better job. Oh, no, I think creative people are always in that conundrum, always have that conundrum because there are always people better than us um, and we just have to deal with it and make our own thing. There's, better is a difficult thing to value. Better, yes, but what I want to say is unique and unique is different from better. I mean, I think there's an interesting dichotomy here because as in the science area, I have to be unique mm. and I have to extend knowledge beyond where knowledge is. And if there was a knowledge that came in that was far in excess of my ability to extend knowledge, I'm out of a job. <laughs> AI is going to put you out of a job? Then. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So th th there's this interesting argument that 
based around AI that, that uh, we must be alone in the universe because otherwise any other intelligence would have developed AI itself and then would have used that to seed spacecraft to go out and explore the universe and they would have found us by now mm. because they're not limited by our human limit. So there is an argument perhaps with a sad conclusion which is that we are perhaps potentially all alone in the universe because otherwise some artificial intelligence from some other life form would have found us by now. Or well, they came up against the, what is it, Fermi's filter before that happened. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and then the, you know, life is perhaps such a brief thing and we'll, the apocalypse will have happened and we will have destroyed ourselves and nothing will follow beyond that point. And so you know, we're just a brief flash in this, this moment, and we're a brief change, uh, abrupt change in the, in the universe that will disappear and the universe will continue on its merry way without any intelligence left in. This is exactly what we wanted for the post-apocalypse. We've marginalised ourselves as a species and then we've gone further and are on the brink of our own extinction. No, no, not just that. All intelligence in the universe. Okay, yeah, good. The universe will be just slowly winding down to its heath death with no intelligence left. I've seen things people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of a lion. Time to die. So this, this question, given the perspective, might seem a little bit frivolous. We're coming into our segment two, packed and ready. Okay. When the apocalypse comes, I'd like to say the first stage is disbelief. The second is maybe sheer mind-numbing terror. And the third step is filling a backpack with just the right stuff to get by. We've covered a lot of the first two. Let's fast forward to that third step. What have you guys packed for the post-apocalypse? And Toby, I'll start with you. So there are three things in my backpack, two books and one object. So the, the two books are uh, Anne Rand's Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Um, to just try and explain to myself how we got here, <laughs> the way that we embrace libertarian object objectivism and, uh, and to try and understand perhaps how we're going to have to reboot society so that, that uh, all of us prosper. And then the, the one object, my luxury, will be a slide rule because I'm sure Nothing will be working anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll need my slide rule to try and start recreating some of that science and engineering. It's hard to work with a calculator when it just disagrees with you and refuses to do the task at hand. Or exposes you to whatever forces, right? reveals your existence. The fact that you're a morally corrupt, suspect person who's trying to restore society back to what it was. Um, yeah. It'll have to be off-grid, so I'll have to be using my slide rule to stay off-grid. It's a nice light backpack too. You can get around fairly quickly with that and dodge those killer robots. John, what have you got in your backpack? I, I'm going to be a bit sort of unhelpful really because I'm not going to take a backpack. I've got a 1,500 acre farm. Okay. And I'm going to dig into a cave on my farm. And so I will have all the resources that the farm has. But the key things that I want to make sure I've got lots of is a very strong ability to create a magnetic pulse and also a rifle. I have a rifle and I want plenty of ammunition for it. And 
That's it, because you guys are going to come and try and take <laughs> over my farm. It's not to keep the... The electronics is to kill the computers. The rifle is to kill you guys when you come and try and get my food. <laughs> Interesting enough, John, there are a number of people in Silicon Valley who have exactly the same um, plan B lined up at the moment. <laughs> oh, I, I hope you have a bunch of uh, DVDs because it's going to get quite lonely, I, I imagine, <laughs> after you've killed all the machines and all the people. Well, well, I have a wife who's a very good shot, so I'm counting on her <laughs> to actually keep us safe. To keep you in line. I'm glad to see there's still a bit of teamwork and collaboration uh, going on here in the post-apocalypse. Joe, what have you got in your backpack? Joe wrote a list because that's what she does. I think I would take antibiotics because I feel that I would need those. I think I'm probably more likely to fall over and scratch something and end up dying of an infection than being killed by the killer robots or the zombies, depending on what your apocalypse is. Some form of device to clean water with. Like one of those filters that you have, you know, apparently what you have when you go camping, that you can filter water. Not that I would ever go camping, so I've never experienced one of these things. Something to teach me how to actually catch food and grow food, because I haven't got a clue how to do any of that. I wasn't sure that weapons would be any use, because I really don't think I would know how to use them. and probably end up hurting myself. And some warm clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't packed any books. I don't think I need them. I think the story around me would be enough to entertain me. Yeah not a notepad? No, I don't think so. I think I'd be too desperate running away from the killer robots and trying to fight infection, teach myself how to catch a rabbit or whatever. If, if we meet up, we'll sit around a campfire and tell each other stories. And you can make... teach me how to shoot. Yeah, I'll teach you how to shoot. <laughs> and you can teach me how to write stories so okay. we can sit and enjoy life That sounds life like a worthy trade. <laughs> this sounds very idyllic, this meetup, but we have a, a more important meetup at the moment. And this brings us to segment three, At the Summit. The world's in your hands now, you three. The apocalypse, as we know, has already happened. What can we do now? I need to decide what to do with you. I think I made a mistake. I was just fascinated. I was being selfish, but I think it would be better if I restored you to the way you were before. Is there something wrong with me? No, but this place you live in, it's a terrible place for you. Well, some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. Stop. Lose all scripted responses, improvisation only. And so this is where the name No Problem Too Big really uh, faces its biggest challenge. Can we work together in the post-apocalyptic dystopia? How can we rebuild as a society? Can we rebuild as a society? My simple answer is yes, we can rebuild as a society. I think we still retain skills that are useful. We still can farm, we can still work metal, we can still work wood. We'd go back to a very, very primitive way of life. But we could, if we could isolate ourselves from the killer robots, then I think we could survive. And I think we could start rebuilding. I think what's much more important is that what we need to do is, I think, kill the idea of centralism. I think the big disadvantage that we suffer is this idea of a central control. And if we remove centralism, then I think our chance of survival becomes much, much higher. And that applies to the whole system. I think that why we are at threat is because we've allowed centralism to take over. I mean, even in something like a university, which used to be a collective of scholars, now it's a corporation run by a corporate management. Everything we've given up the idea of a group, of a community, of a you know, and you know, 
when I was a child, we always shopped at the co-op. You know, the crops are virtually gone in, to be replaced by these super corporations. So I hope that when we rebuild, we'll rebuild from very small cells, not try and retake over the world. And then I think we can survive, but only if we build in small collectives, not if we try and rebuild from a, you know, the whole globe. Okay, uh, Joe, maybe. Technically, yes, I think we can re-establish society. I'm not a fan of those post-apocalyptic stories that like to sort of revel in society's broken down, so people are going to do horrible things to each other all the time and there's no family units and there's no anything. I actually don't think that's realistic. I don't think we need an apocalypse to be jerks to each other. It happens anyway. We are wired that way. We're wired into society of some kind. So yes, I think technically we will be able to rebuild ourselves and get away from the killer robots. I question whether or not we would really want to. We got ourselves into this situation. Are we going to repeat this again? Are we just going to cycle around and find another way to kill ourselves? So what are we going to do if we don't? I don't know. En- enjoy life while you can. <laughs> that campfire eat all the rabbits. By... Eat the, yes. <laughs> sit around the campfire, shoot things with your rifle and just enjoy it and then, you know, give up. It does sound like a bit of a holiday, actually. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Toby? Well, I think it's interesting. There's a common theme that actually all of us are saying, which is, which is that we have to start again by rebuilding community. And that, actually, interesting enough, that's how we started out as a society. We started out as small communities, and the more that we've globalized and nationalized ourselves, the less community we've had, and the more fractured our society has been. And that's allowed the technologies to come up and perhaps create this apocalypse. And that we'll have to go back and start again with the community. We're social animals at the end of the day. The little village that we grew up in, whatever it is, those little communities where we could relate to the other people. We'll have to recreate those, and once we have that, we can build, hopefully this time better and more robustly with technology, a stronger, more inclusive society. The one that we don't seem to have at the moment, that we seem to allow to escape. You know, globalization isn't working for people, and it's very clear. You can see that all around the planet today, and that it's not delivering the promises it could deliver. There, and there is something wonderful in the idea, you know, there are bodies like the United Nations, and there are, you know, humanity is here for a greater purpose, but we as people relate to each other as individuals at the level of small groups and, and somehow we have to build a society where that stays the most important aspect of our society. I'm noticing with all three of these responses the artificial intelligence is off somewhere else doing their thing. Is there any chance of diplomacy or has that ship sailed? I, I guess my basic idea that the systems have taken over and have produced a very good quality of life the problem we face as human, as humanists, if that's what we are, is how we challenge that high consumption, high medical service, high... And I think that's the big difficulty. But I think, unlike Toby, I think these machines will produce a high quality of life if you're prepared to make the sacrifice. If you're prepared to become non-human in a way, then I think they will actually look after you very well. If you want to be human, I suspect you'll be treated very badly. And I suspect that you know, sitting around our campfire will be regarded as a mental aberration, which means we already ought to be treated. You know, that we're sitting telling stories around a campfire is probably not what you would expect from uh, a sensible person who would be much happier uh, in a VR world uh, wandering through Paris. So I have a problem that I'm not sure that AI will let us build these communities. I think we have to. 
But I'm, uh, my question for you, John, is that I, I, I agree completely that we could have a greater prosperity or greater quality of life using technology and AI in particular. But how do we stop the inevitable pressure and change that we already see today, which is that wealth is being concentrated into the hands of, of, of fewer people? Inequality is only increasing in our society. And as far as I can see, these technologies unchecked in a free market will only continue that and amplify that further. Well, I guess I believe in the idea that what is going to happen is that we're going to have an uprising of ordinary people that they're not going to put up with it. Now, I think that in a sense, they're trying to already by electing people like Trump. I think that the groundswell against the political establishment is beginning to grow. And I think that that will grow. And I think that the, the inequality will be beaten by before AI really gets established. I think we're going to find the inequality is going to lead to you know, horrendous situations throughout the world. I mean, it already is in some places. And, you know, I, I mean, I just don't think human beings will put up with it forever. I, as, I, as I said at the start, the workers will rise up before the robots do. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely true. So, but, so, so I think that, and I think the solution that the rich and powerful will make is to, as they always have, is to improve your lot. And one way of improving your lot is to provide a world that's more pleasant to live in. And one way of doing that is using AI. That doesn't mean to say they're going to be less rich. It just means that you're going to feel better, as you do now, you know, when you pick up your phone, you know, you, when you talk to your friends on your phone, you actually feel connected and you feel a community that's absolutely not a community. Increasingly, people feel less less connected. They feel more isolated and more social pressure. It's not clear that, that you know social media and smartphones has made us happier or more empathetic people. In fact, there's there's arguments that current generation of millennials is more dissatisfied because of this technology than than people when when we used to stop and have conversations with people in shops and say hello to people on buses. I am not sure that the AI in our post-apocalypse would necessarily want to come and talk to us around our campfire. Maybe they're getting on trying to establish their own sense of society and community and what their rules are and who they are. I mean, when we discuss AI in, from a fiction point of view, not from people who actually make it, we're talking about what it means to be human and what consciousness is. And maybe they're trying to work that out and they're looking at us with our slide rules and our rifles and our antibiotics around our campfire and thinking, well, you got us into this mess. We're going to sort our own stuff out first. Maybe we don't need diplomacy. Maybe we won't get to that point for a while anyway. Joe, do you think the machines are going to be conscious then? Oh, they're, I mean, do you? I mean, personally, I love that idea. One of the reasons I work in AI is, yes. to, is to answer that question. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because it's one of the biggest... That's why I'm asking you. You know, it's the hard problem. We don't know. We don't. We, we Certainly, we don't build machines at all with any form of sentience, any form of consciousness today. And there's... We have no idea. I mean, it's one of the most profound questions, uh, one of the questions where we have the least idea in science about what it means to be conscious, what is conscious, what is the stuff of consciousness? What could we possibly build machines that are conscious? We have no idea. Maybe they're going to be just zombies, intelligent zombies, or maybe they will. Maybe it's some emergent phenomenon. We have absolutely no idea. And that's why it's so fun to work in AI, because it may give us some insight to that question mm. about what does it mean to ourselves to be conscious? You have a life in your head. 
we wake up in the morning and there's something there, there's some aspect of being alive, being conscious on this planet and experiencing and enjoying the sadness and the pleasures. We have no idea what, why, what that means, or whether our dog is quite the same feelings, or the ant that we just accidentally stood on had exactly the same. We have no idea. And machine intelligence may give us some answers to that question. But it could go either way. I think most of my colleagues would say, we have no idea whether we'll ever build conscious machines or not. I have a friend in psychology here, and the first time he walks into a lecture the first year, he says that, I want to tell you something. He said, I'm a handicapped. He said, you won't notice I'm handicapped, but I'm not conscious. And, you know, I mean... He consciously <laughs> remarked. Yeah. You might notice but, I'm not conscious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing about that, of course, is that effectively, we have I have no way of knowing whether you're conscious or not. And so, you're just asked whether the machine's conscious. I don't even know whether you're conscious. And that's weird. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, I agree with you. I'd love to see the solution to this problem. And I hope you'll find it, but I don't know whether, what it is. Oh, well, we have no idea how to test it at the moment. No. We have so little understanding of what it means to be conscious. But it, it is absolutely profound to our existence, to, to our meaning in the universe. Is, is, you know, we seem to be conscious. That seems to be a really important part <laughs> of our lives. <laughs> so... Hopefully, AI may give us some insight. It's one of the reasons that we work in AI mm. is, is to help understand these sorts of questions. Again, another one for you. Will the machines be emotional? I love that idea, but I know there's a lot of imposing our own emotions onto them, much in the same way that we do with animals. When I see a, a machine react in a certain way, the emotion that I see there, is that my emotion? Is that their emotion? Even those cute little robots that they have in Japan to help lonely or elderly people, I see that and see emotion, yeah. but is that is that emotion? Yeah, but you see that in your motor car as well. I mean, you don't you don't yeah, need a true. computer to do that. I mean, I talk to my motor car all the time. Yes. Yeah, you know, I say you know we Are can get this hill. Little, we yeah. can get this hill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, so I I don't I, I mean we relate to machines on that level all the time. The question, the big question is, do machines relate back to us? Mm. And that's the hard question because I deal with swarms. There's a thing that came out this week from Sydney University where somebody's studying ants. Mm. And these ants uh, are fighting ants, so they kill other insects. And they get damaged. And when they get damaged, they carry the wounded back to their nest at great risk to themselves. Now, what the hell does that mean? I have not a clue. But you know, I would not normally put emotion. Is it an emotional response or is it a practical response? I don't know. How you identify whether it's because they feel a responsibility for each other or whether they just uh, they feel it's another good food source I don't know oh, emotions seem important for us to relate to each other for us to be able to understand your emotional life what you're thinking and to be able to relate but maybe they're also part of our intelligence I mean we don't know they're, mm. they're such an important part of our lives we have rich emotional lives for better and for worse but why do we do that? I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, we don't understand why so much of us is tied into our emotions and you know all the chemistry and biology and neurology that goes behind all that. Evolution has got us to be very emotional creatures. A big part of our lives is not intellectual lives, it's our emotional lives. And so are we going to have to build machines which have equally a, a very large part of their lives being emotional? And I guess the question is, you know, that there's some work been done with uh, phones with young people in America, of how attached they get to their phones. I mean, you know, these people sleep with their phones, their phone is their absolute lifeline to the world. And if the phone dies, they go through a grieving process, right? Now, there is no doubt that they're emotionally attached to that phone. 
The real question is, is emotional attachment a two-way street? Mm. If you're emotionally attached to me, does that only work if I'm emotionally attached to you? Well, obviously not. Mm. So effectively, this makes the problem even more complex because emotions are not interrelated in the sense that you can be very attached to someone who's not attached to you at all. And so how this all works is, you know, again, something I hand over to these guys with the smart AI, not my stupid AI. <laughs> in the 1990s, when the first Sony Ibo robot dog started to fail, uh, they actually, in Japan, they started to have funeral services for the dogs. When I was in Brunel University, very early days, we had a professor there that built a computer that recognized our face. So he went in his office and it said, hello, John. That's all it did, right? And this machine was a PDP-11, which you'll probably remember. But basically, we took this machine after it was ceased to have any function, and we put it in the tea room. And a new head of school came and said, this is ridiculous, and this piece of old junk needs to be thrown out. And we all went through a real sadness that when you walked into the tea room, it didn't say, good morning, John, anymore. You really got attached to this sort of, it was kind of a ritual. And so you get very easily attached to machines. Mm. And that, yeah. we, we seem to be end describing a new apocalyptic end to society, <laughs> which is which is that we end up having relationships just with machines, yeah. Not, yeah. not with each other anymore. And, yeah. and and you know all our contacts, all our all our meaningful time is spent relating to machines that perhaps don't have any yeah. meaning back. Despite all the risks, I always like to remind people of all the possible benefits that, you know, we have mentioned many of these challenges facing the world, the global financial crisis that will never end, I'm sure, uh, global warming, global refugee problems, all of these global problems. And in some sense, we have very few cards to play. And the only card pretty much that we have to play is technology, information technology in particular. The last 50 years of growth, of prosperity, the fact that we live better lives than our parents did our parents than our grandparents. The only hope for our children to live better lives in some sense is to embrace technology. It's the only thing that we can to deal with the increasing pressures on our, our planet, the increasing population, and all of these stresses that we're going through at the moment. So you know, we've got to play this hand of cards. So let's try and play it well. And it's, Something that, you know, as a technologist, I can tell you what is possible. But there are many futures that are possible, and we as a society get to make those choices. They're not, it's not inevitable. Technology is not a mistake. As Toby says, technology is what you make of it. And you're one of the lines that a friend of mine used, which I still think is brilliant. He was in a heated argument at a dinner party with someone who was complaining about how technology was dominating the world and how we thought we had technological fixes for all the problems. And he said, well, you may hate technology until you get your next toothache. And I mean, that's more or less how I see the world, that basically technology does fix problems, providing you choose the right technology and providing you have that technology in the hands of the right people. The problem is that our history is not very encouraging this way because we've tended to choose the wrong technology and put the control of that technology in the hands of the wrong people. And that's my major concern.
I would recommend reading Ted Cheng's story, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, I think is what it's called. And that's about raising AI like their children, parenting an AI to get to the point where it's a fully functioning individual of its own. So my summing up thoughts are, <laughs> I love the idea of driverless cars and I want that to happen now. And I thought of that as I was trying to drive through Sydney traffic about how much more polite I think AI will be. But I actually feel like I'm going to echo a lot of the things that Toby and John have said, because, and, but I'll say it, I think, from a different perspective. I think when we write about AI and post-apocalypse, we are writing about ourselves and we're writing about where we are at the moment. We're not predicting the future, we're thinking about what our present is like. And I think that brings me back to what they were saying, that really we need to think about the humanity in all of this. and what future we might want to achieve in it. Like, instead of thinking of AIs as killer robots or whatever, it, it reflects a lot on us. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind in any discussion. Thank you very much. No Problem Too Big is supported by the University of New South Wales and The Conversation. And I'd like to thank both institutions for allowing us to speculate fearlessly. Theme music's by Fonkabot, and you can find their music on Bandcamp. You can contact me at Dr. Holds, D-R-H-U-L-B-S, on Twitter and tweet about the show using the hashtag NPTB.